Um, I'm going to read to you um, from Mark 12 about the parable of the tenants. And I'm just going to read to you that passage from the Bible. But as I read it, I want you to really think about the story. And I want you to think about who you think the hero is in this story. And and bear that in mind. And then as I preach and um, as I speak and unpack this passage, I want you to think about whether you still think that that same person is the hero of the story. So if you want to turn with it, you can. It might even magically come up. I have no idea. Um, So Mark 12, verse 1, the parable of the tenants. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect some of the fruit from the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He still sent another and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them he beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked, this is the Pharisees, for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So just have a little think who you think is the hero in that story. Now, some parables themselves have little nuggets of gold within them um, set alone as a parable. But actually, this parable is really speaking into the context of what was going on at the time. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time this morning actually just talking you through the context of the whole passage. And this story Jesus told in the temple Now, um, I don't know if any of you have seen the Jewish temple as a massive square building with different courts, but the temple was the centre of Jewish life and community. We're in this amazing building today, and some people come in the week, but many of us will come here maybe once a week. But the Jewish temple, people would be daily in and out of the temple. And the temple was sacred. It was holy. It was where kind of God met earth. And it symbolized God's presence and God's rule of justice and righteousness. And the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy of holy things that the Jews held dear, was held in the temple. And the temple rhythms were part of everyday life. So people would come and pray. They would come daily and offer um, offerings. They would worship. They'd teach. They'd hear sermons. Um, they, They went there. It was really integral to their life. And the priests were in charge of the temple. And they represented God and they interpreted God's laws. And they were highly revered. And they had these amazing robes with tassels on them. And they had a high status in society. And it's in the temple that Jesus tells this parable. 
Now, I'm going to do something. I'm going to trek back a little bit to the chapter before, and I'm not going to read you the whole story, but I'm just going to tell you the story. Go and read it yourselves. It's amazing. Um, I love reading the Bible, and there's so much we miss by telling them orally. But for the purpose of this morning, I'm just going to talk you through what happened, okay? So before Jesus tells this story, we have this amazing scene where Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, uh, many of you may be familiar with this scene. I don't know how well you know the Bible, so you know, might not be. But this was actually a hugely symbolic moment. Because in the Old Testament, they'd prophesied that the king and the Messiah would one day come to them riding a donkey. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And there are crowds around him, before him, in front of him. They're taking off their coats. They're waving palm branches. They're laying them on the floor so he can come through this amazing procession. And he comes through. And also, that would have come have been indicative of royalty. That's the sort of thing they would have done if a king was coming into the city. And he comes in and it was like a symbolic and prophetic entry into Jerusalem that wouldn't have got unnoticed. And the first thing he does when he goes into Jerusalem is he goes to the temple, the place where God meets earth. Now he goes to the temple for the first time and it doesn't tell us much. It just tells us that he had a look around and then he left with his disciples. But on the next day, Jesus woke up and he again goes back to the temple. And some of you, again, may be familiar with this story. But what Jesus does this time is he goes into the temple, the temple that is meant to be sacred and holy and full of God's presence, where people represent God to humanity. And it's become like this marketplace of buying and selling and cash and materialism and trying to, people trying to make money. And Jesus walks straight into the middle of the temple, which would have been bustling and heaving, and he overturns the tables. And he starts causing an absolute commotion, kicking everything up in the air, throwing the money around, getting people out of the way. And he stands in the middle and he says some words that are from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, it, is it not written that my house, this temple, should be a house of prayer for all nations, and yet you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests that were in charge of the temple could see all of this commotion. They knew he'd come in on a donkey. They knew the crowds were following. And now he's come into their temple, their holy church, causing absolute chaos and havoc. And they are furious. They're not like, hey, son of God's coming to a temple. This is great. They're like absolutely livid. And the text tells us it sought, they sought to kill him. They were so mad. And um, Jesus kind of slipped away out of the temple. Now, the next day, Jesus wakes up. And you'll never guess where he went for the third time. Now, even if I'd gone to Sainsbury's, which is just a supermarket, and it's not sacred, and I had messed up the aisles and thrown things everywhere and just caused absolute devastation, I might think twice about going back there. But Jesus decides that for the third time, he's going to go back to the temple. Now, I don't know how these th priests are feeling when Jesus again walks in the door. You can just imagine the tension. And the chief priest who's in charge and has the authority of the temple and that representative of, of God on earth, he comes up to Jesus and he confronts him. And he says, on whose authority do you do these things? You can just feel the tension in the scene. If it was a Netflix movie, you'd just be like, what is he going to say next? And Jesus, who I love, <laughs> he replies with a question. 
And he says, I will only tell you the answer to your question if you can answer my question. And so he asks a question and he talks about John's baptism. And he asks the chief priest, can you tell me whose authority John's baptism is? He said, is it of man or is it of God? And the chief priests and the Pharisees just didn't know really what to say. And they knew kind of if they answered either way, they were kind of in trouble. And Jesus says to them, you can't answer my question, so neither will I answer your question and tell you whose authority I'm doing these things under. (gasps) So the most important person that represents God in the temple is confronting him. And Jesus is not even complying with an answer. And then... While everyone is watching and the crowds are there and you can cut the tension, Jesus tells a parable, which is this parable. So I'm just going to just highlight some of the things. So we know the man plants a vineyard and it, for all intents and purposes, seems good and he gives it to tenants. Um, And the owner again and again sends tenants. The first one is beaten. The second one is um, bashed over the head and treated shamefully. The third one is killed. Finally, he sends his son. You can see where this is going, can't you? And finally, he said, you know, they will at least respect my son. But they don't, do they? We hear that they kill him. And um, in the end, we hear the owner of this vineyard, he puts out the tenants, he kills them, and he puts other people in charge of the vineyard. But Jesus finishes with this really kind of strange verse. I'm going to come back to this at the end. But he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And when they heard him tell this parable, they were absolutely livid because he knew, they knew it was about them And they were determined to have him killed. So, what is Jesus saying in this story? Why is he telling it now at this key moment? And who is the the hero? Is it the owner? Is it the servants? Is it the son? I want to talk to you a little bit, first of all, about the owner of this vineyard. Now, I don't know about you, but in the story, the owner of the vineyard, we're thinking maybe surely, like when I read this, I thought, I don't really understand, doesn't really make sense. Why would the owner of the vineyard just keep sending people? He kind of knows what's going to happen. You can kind of see the trajectory. Is the owner of the vineyard not angry that he keeps sending people that get abused, beaten, and killed? Why doesn't the owner who does have the authority just kick them out or have them killed? That's how nice I am, because that's what I was thinking when I read the text. Just take them out. But instead of vengeance, the vineyard owner gives them chance after chance after chance, finally sending his own son. And just listen that Jesus is telling this to the audience in the temple. Now, I don't know how you would describe the vineyard owner. Maybe you'd say he's patient. Maybe you'd say he's long-suffering with these awful tenants. Maybe you think he's taking lots of chances and risks, keep sending people. Maybe you think he's foolish, like it's madness to keep sending people again and again. Why would you do that when these tenants are clearly wicked and evil and violent? Or is it radical grace? You see, the owner of the vineyard, it's not very hard to work out, he represents God. And the tenants represented those Pharisees. They knew, they listened to the story straight away, and they knew that this was about them. 
because the temple belonged to God. Like the story where the owner owns the vineyard, Jesus was in the temple basically saying to them, this belongs to God. This temple is God's. This is not yours. You are simply stewards. You are simply tenants. God was answering their question. He was answering their question. When they said, whose authority do you do this? He answered them in this parable. Actually, the owner of the vineyard has the authority. Um, I love this quote from Kenneth Bailey, who's a theologian that I really like. He writes, really trying to think about how things would have been from a Middle Eastern perspective. And he writes this. The owner is acting out of unspeakable nobility. And he profoundly hopes that his choice of total vulnerability will awaken a long-forgotten sense of honour in the hearts of violent men who are waiting in the vineyard. Bailey talks about the owner having a self-emptying love, a sacrificial forgiveness that the owner of the vineyard just keeps going back and keeps going back and keeps trying to reach out to these tenants. Um, I study theology, not brilliantly, because I'm a bit bit slow on time, but I try. And um, I was away in January studying theology and... um, at university, and one of the things we're looking at in our class was the martyrs. And um, I read this story that kind of stuck with me, and it was about Polycarp. Some of you may have heard of him. And he was in the very early church as the church was kind of emerging. What was going on in the early church was many people were being martyred in stadiums publicly to try and humiliate and, and squash down Christianity. And he was this amazing leader, and loads has been written about him. He was a good Bible teacher. He did everything to try and help the church grow. He was a good shepherd of the flock. People really loved him. And the authorities were like, you know, we have got to get Polycarp. We have got to get him in this arena. We have got to make a a show of him. We've got to martyr him. And he kept kind of eluding them. Um, But one of his um, friends ended up being tortured and, and, and disclosed where Polycarp was. This is true. And um, Polycup got the message, they're coming for you. They're coming for you now to take you into the arena. And his friends were like, quick, let's escape out the back door. We can take you somewhere. We can run. We can go. And Polycarp was like, no, let them come. And when they knocked on the door, I don't know what you'd have expected his reaction to be. I'll tell you what mine would have been. Anyway, maybe not. When they knocked on the door... He said to them, so he opened the door to the people that were taking him to his execution in the most violent way. He opened the door and he said, I know what you've come for, but before you come, I'd love to prepare a meal for you. So they came in and he created this amazing, lavish meal for them. And he said, I just have one request. He said, before you take me, will you just give me um, an hour just so I can have it in prayer before I go? And they granted him his request. What amazing, radical, like we can't comprehend it, sense of grace and love towards people that show hatred and violence. I can't remember I've told you this, so you have to bear with me. But this time last year, I was in Rwanda um, for work, meeting some of my colleagues and seeing some of the work we do. I work for Tear Fund, which is a development charity. And I had the great privilege of going to Rwanda. As many of you may know, there was a genocide there probably 20 plus years ago now. And I went to the genocide memorial, which in itself was profound. But I met many people over there. In fact, 
Every Rwandan you will meet will have a genocide story and know somebody who had been brutally murdered in the genocide. And so I listened to story after story after story of just things that, that we can't even comprehend. And um, again and again, and, and these people, um, many of them are kind of put away for war crimes, but now they've been released. And so these people in Rwanda, when they go to the supermarket to buy milk, how we just do all the time or whatever, they bump into people that were perpetrators of extreme violence in their family and to their loved ones. They see them all the time. And so, so many people, I sat down, I was like, how? How do you navigate this? How do you recover from this? How do you walk through this? And again and again, the stories were, forgiveness was our only way through. Forgiveness was the only way that it was, we weren't just stuck in this cycle of violence upon violence upon violence and violence. It was the only way through. And there was these incredible stories where victims and perpetrators would sit down together, embracing one another. And so the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the love of God went both to the victim and the perpetrator of the crime. And I came away and I had to look at myself. Like, what unforgiveness am I still holding on to? And how can I, when they can manage to forgive this, how can I hold on to some of these things in my heart? You see, the owner of the vineyard isn't just mindlessly sending servants. He is intentionally giving the tenants who are wicked and who are foul, he's intentionally giving them opportunities to respond despite their bad behavior and it and and finally he sends his best we we've heard this story before haven't we he saved his best to last finally he saves his only son finally he sends him and it doesn't make sense and the gospel doesn't make sense is undeserved as I was preparing this, I just remembered an old song that I must have heard when I was a little girl. Some of you might know it. And the lyric says, the grace of God given unto me, it is unending, unfailing, unlimited, and unmerited. And in the parable, the son is killed while trying to reach the tenants. And Jesus tells, tells this profound story in the center of the temple where everyone is waiting on his every breath. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, is <laughs> telling them, we keep sending, the owner keeps sending people to you. The father keeps sending people to you and you're not listening. And Jesus comes in the temple as the son, as the final messenger in the temple. Their final chance to listen to the son that is sitting in front of them and they are questioning whose authority he's under. He replies through this parable. You see, it is a judgment on them, but it's also showing this parable, the history of grace extended to them. And then we turn to the Pharisees, the tenants. They know straight away that this is about them. And the priests and the Pharisees were entrusted by God with the temple to look after the weak, the vulnerable, to uphold justice, uphold righteousness, to tell people about God's amazing love. But the parable that Jesus said in the middle of the temple, he didn't just leave it there. I mean, it wasn't very veiled, to be honest. It was quite obvious, the meaning. He didn't just leave it there. He went on to teach in the temple why the teachers were listening. He went on to say to the crowds that were hanging on every word, it says, that they were delighted in speaking. He said, watch out for the teachers of the law. Watch out. They like flowing and wearing amazing robes. And they like doing these long prayers, but they devour widows. And these men will be punished. <laughs> 
So Jesus is really critiquing the religious people that they weren't reflecting God. You see, the priests valued power and lording it over people and wealth and position and greed, turning, selling and making money in the temple. It was about taking. It was about exploiting. It reflected the values of the culture. It didn't reflect the values of God and his kingdom. It didn't reflect the values of the owner of the vineyard. I know that we need to watch some of these things in our own hearts. I haven't got much time this morning, but I'm just going to tell you really quickly a time when I was in prayer with God and I was moaning to God. It wasn't in this church, but the church I was in, I was moaning to him that I wasn't really appreciated for my serving. I wasn't really being acknowledged very much. And I did so much and no one seemed to care. I was telling God. And I opened my Bible in Isaiah And it basically said, your reward is with your God. And I felt God really convict me at that time in my life. And actually, I've never kind of struggled with that same thing again. Because God said to me, you do what you do in your serving for me alone. And your reward is with me. But the Pharisees, they loved people. They loved people serving them, following them, giving them money, buying the best clothes. And God, Jesus was so angry that they hadn't reflected the kingdom You see, Jesus knew the temple was meant to be where we experience the Holy Spirit and we find God, like God's presence has been here this morning. It was meant to be about loving others, about praying for the nations. I love it that we're in a church that regularly thinks about the nations. That's what Jesus wanted. It was meant to be where offerings were made for the poor and the broken and the weak and the marginalized. It was meant to be where shepherds served the flock. And Jesus came into that temple with all of those people to realign the kingdom and bring restoration to what the temple should have been. And we know from the Bible, I haven't got enough time to deeply go into this, but we know that Jesus then talks about how he would be the temple. No longer would the presence of God be limited to this building and justice be limited to there. But actually, it was going to be in Jesus who died and rose again. He said that he would, he would um, destroy the temple but resurrect it. And so he becomes the temple. He becomes the place where we go to meet God. He becomes where heaven meets earth. He becomes the place we go to for our prayers. He becomes the embodiment of justice and kindness the weak and marginalized. Now, that is incredible, absolutely incredible that the temple is no longer this place, it's in a person. But do you know what is absolutely blows my mind about this? Is that it doesn't stop there. The Bible says that we, as believers and followers of Jesus, are part of the temple story. Um, In the Apostles, it talks about how we are the living stones. We have God's spirit dwelt in us. We represent God and his kingdom to the world. We are part of the temple. The temple moves from being a building to being Jesus to being in us as God's representative. And so the church and us as individuals, we are the ones that embody to the world who God is within our own being. Corinthians says, do you not know that you yourself are God's temple? And Peter says, like living stones, we are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We are now the priesthood of God. And so I'd ask you the question now, who do you think the hero is of this story? Because to me, the hero is the vineyard owner who relentlessly and almost foolishly just keeps sending messenger after messenger after messenger, extending love and grace in the face of violence. Because God endlessly tries to reach humanity. 
even in giving his son. So how do we respond today? And how do we respond just having a morning where the presence of God has been thick amongst us? I think we come to the father, the owner of the vineyard, who is slow to anger, who is full of grace and forgives us in our violence and wickedness. And also we can reflect and ask, does anything in our hearts have any seeds of what's in the Pharisees' hearts? It's easy to look at them in the bad guys, but it's so easy for seeds of, of materialism and greed and wanting people's recognition to seep into our own hearts. And we can remember the Son, Jesus, who not only was the temple in his death and resurrection, but actually has changed our identity so that we now participate in his death and resurrection and become part of the temple story. So that's what I want to bring to you today.